Good morning. <laughs> uh, glad to be here. I, uh, so, you know, like three and a half weeks now ago, I think, I got COVID, and apparently my voice hasn't been the same since, so I can't really tell it, but I've, I've heard from a few people. I'm healthy. I don't have, I'm not sick, um, but just so you know, if I sound funny, uh, don't laugh, please. Uh, this, <laughs> this is, I told you don't laugh. <laughs> Uh, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we get to be glad and rejoice in it this morning. Um, and we get to rejoice this morning by opening up the Word of God together and listening to His care and concern for us. We're continuing in our series in the Gospel according to Matthew. So would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 this morning? As you're turning there... Uh, I think one of the consequences of our modern world and the availability of technology, one of the consequences of that is cynicism. Uh, not just like a critical spirit, but uh, rather I think we and our world have become far more likely to adopt a default perspective that everyone around us is really only out for their own good. And I think there's evidence that people often are really out for their own good, right? Uh, and to be clear, uh, yeah, that's true. The word toxic has developed um, as a descriptor of certain people around us for a reason. Uh, the information age, the availability of the internet has only made us more aware of the brokenness of the people and the organizations around us. Our politics reflect this. When you go to vote, the messaging is much more about who you should mistrust and who you should be suspicious of rather than about who you can trust. And we've seen evidence of manipulation by advertisers and news organizations, religious leaders, friends, and for some of us, we've been manipulated even by close family members. And sin and brokenness in the world around us actually push us to be cynical. But that's the cure that's actually worse than the disease. And Jesus is deeply concerned about that. And this morning, through this text, uh, I'd like us to see Jesus' first, his deep concern about the danger of cynicism, and to show you how he answers cynicism in a way that leads us not to naiveness, but to resiliency. So would you stand with me, if you are able, as we read God's good news to us this morning? We're in Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. That's Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, 
I will return to the house I left, and when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Why don't we pray together? Lord, as it's been said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. We can relate to the skepticism of the Pharisees. The world we live in could produce nothing else in us except doubt and guardedness. So Lord, in a miracle of your goodness, would you soften our hearts, clear our eyes, open our ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church this morning. We want to be not wicked and adulterous, but righteous and faithful. Would you accomplish this in us today? And in Christ's name and power we pray. Amen. You can take a seat. If you've been here each week, as we've walked through this part of the Bible, you'll recognize a theme that Matthew is highlighting in the life of Jesus. He's been highlighting for us how no one is, and really no one can be neutral about Jesus and his mission. After Jesus, remember back in the Beatitudes, described the good news of what he calls the kingdom of God, and then after he demonstrates this good news by healing the sick, liberating the oppressed, many are hesitant to accept him as who he says he is. And actually, Jesus has been countering this kind of opposition for a while now in our story. When Matthew wrote down this account of Jesus' life, he hints at this, actually, by using this phrase, this generation. He only uses it a handful of times in Matthew, and every time he does, it's condemning when people will reject who Jesus says he is. And most of those times are actually in the passage we read this morning. The first time that we actually came across it was a few weeks ago in Matthew 11, when he says, to what can I compare this generation? And there Jesus says, the generation is like kids playing music in the street, and nothing that they play is good enough. The kids in the parable play sad music, and nobody cries. They play happy music, and nobody dances. Nothing Jesus does seems to be good enough for the people to consider who he is. And this all comes to a climax last time, when the religious leaders claim that when Jesus casts out a demon, he's doing it by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. Today, I wonder if the Pharisees would be congratulated for thinking for themselves. You can say one thing about this generation. They will not have the wool pulled over their eyes. That's a virtue in our climate, right? Oh, lost where we were. There we go. Um, so I, I hope that in our generation that we would find some sympathy and care for the Pharisees because they are not unlike us. And Jesus loved them deeply. And so in that way, too, they are not unlike us. 
In our text today, Jesus responds to their demand for a sign, as he always does, by addressing the heart of their issue. See, the Pharisees think that their issue is simply that they don't have enough data in order to give their allegiance to Jesus. But Jesus, after all of the interactions with the Pharisees he's had so far, he's really concerned about their hearts. And I think he might be concerned about ours as well. You see, he recognized that their problem wasn't that they didn't have enough information to be convinced. It is that they had decided that the risk of giving someone else their allegiance was just not worth it anymore. If you've studied any of the history of the Jewish people in the period right before this, you'd understand why the Pharisees were skeptical. The people of Israel had had so many people arise with a promise to be their savior, and each had let them in disappointment. Some of you know what that's like, to give your allegiance to somebody and be left disappointed. How utterly embarrassing is it to be taken in? to have your allegiance given to the wrong thing. So Jesus says, you have become a generation as a result for whom nothing that I do is good enough. So he challenges their accusation, their accusation that he's from Satan. And he actually does something that was common in the Jewish court system of the time where he'd call witnesses to prove against their point. That's common in our court system too. So, the first witness he calls is from the story of Jonah. He says, look, your problem isn't a lack of data. I'll prove it to you. Do you remember the Ninevites from the story of Jonah? They were the most wicked of generations. And to the Jewish leaders, he emphasizes the fact they weren't even Jewish. And yet, they repented. Now, as a church, we went through the story of Jonah uh, a few years ago. But if you're unfamiliar, Jonah is not the hero of the story. He's a disaster. And he basically seems to do everything in his power to not have the Ninevites repent. He only goes, if you remember the story, a few steps into the city gates, gives a five-word sermon, which doesn't actually tell them to repent, and leaves that there. And the whole city, even the cows apparently, repent. They all turn to Jesus. Even though they have a delinquent prophet, they turn to God. And you think that you don't have enough information? Witness number two, the queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south. This is a story that you can find in 1 Kings chapter 10. And King Solomon is right on the tipping point. If you know the story of Solomon, he is this king who loves the Lord and loves God. And there's a tipping point where all of a sudden he starts to love the things that God gives him more. And this story happens right in that moment. Because Solomon had a right understanding of God and his relationship with him, he had become profoundly wise. Because, you know, the, the right understanding of God, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. But as that, those benefits and the wealth and the access that his wisdom provided accumulated, he changed his allegiance um, Solomon's kingdom eventually collapses and fails. And at the crux of this story, right in between where Solomon starts to decline and where he's ascending, we see the Queen of the South show up. She heard about Solomon's wisdom and she traveled what's estimated to be like 2,400 kilometers. Some say like a seven-year journey from about modern-day Ethiopia up to see Solomon. 
because she had just heard about how great his kingdom was. And once again, the one who's supposed to represent God, who's the king, if you read the story, he, he answers some of her questions. He shows her his kingdom. He doesn't seem to really be evangelizing who God is. He's quite silent in this story. But the queen of the south, seeing what God had done, and again, to the Jewish leaders, he also was, she also was not Jewish. She proclaims, praise the Lord for what he has done in your kingdom. Even though their king was about to lose his moorings, this queen travels for years to see God's work and praises him for it. And you think you don't have enough information? Jesus just said a chapter earlier, the blind see, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Well, then Jesus turns to a parable to conclude his case against the Pharisees who claim that he just hasn't given enough information and he's probably from Satan. Part of Jesus' ministry and what has started this whole conversation is his ministry of setting uh, people free from the demonic, liberating people. And that's what they're skeptical about. So to wrap up his case, he tells this pretty odd story um, of what some commentators call the, the parable of the homeless demon. Um, now, it's, it's important to be clear about just two things. First, uh, we believe in the reality of evil and spiritual powers in our world. And any of you who have seen real evil would have no problem agreeing with that. The other thing is, I don't think that this text is giving us an encyclopedia entry about how demons work. It's a parable that Jesus is telling, which um, through that lens, I kind of agree with some of the commentators. It's, it's a little bit funny. Um, so imagine Jesus tells this story. He says there is a demon who is cast out of a person, and it doesn't know what to do. It's lonely. Um, it came to mind, I don't know if some of you, uh, I won't say those who are younger, but probably those who are younger, might be familiar with that, that meme of Kermit the Frog, who's just like staring out a rainy window, leaning against a pole, sitting by the pond, just not really sure what, he's out in the arid places, not really sure what to do. Poor little demon, this is, yeah, it's kind of wandering around, not sure where to go. And at the end of the day, he's like, well, let's see what's going on back in my old house. And he goes back and expects, because he was kicked out, that somebody was supposed to go and move in. And he goes, like, wow, it's, they really cleaned the place up. This is great. There's nobody here. I'm going to go get my friends and start over again. And Jesus says, uh, this is what this generation is like. Jesus is doing many great things for these people. He's emptying out their houses from demons. He's casting out their, these evil spirits, healing them, bringing the good news of the kingdom. And this generation, just like Solomon and just like Jonah, are happy to take on the advantages of having a really nice, clean house. But they're failing to give their allegiance, the ownership of the house, to God, and that's putting them in a very, very dangerous position. The Pharisees' skepticism is keeping their house clean, but they are leaving it unable to be occupied. And that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, is quite famous for his series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and in that, the pinnacle character is this 
lion called Aslan who represents God, the one who brings restoration and healing and love and judgment. And in the final of his book, The Last Battle, we see kind of chaos ensue. It's kind of the closing chapter of the world of Narnia. Uh, And in this story, there's this evil ape. And this evil ape causes deception. He thinks, you know what? We haven't seen Aslan for a long time, but let's deceive the people into thinking that I'm one of his messengers so I can get a bunch of wealth and accumulate all these things. And the story goes on, and you should read it. It's profound. Uh, But as the story goes on, he deceives all of these different groups of true Narnians, people who live in the land of Narnia, including the dwarfs. And they get taken in. And this is profoundly embarrassing. And as the story progresses, the dwarfs decide there's no way we'll ever give our allegiance to anyone else. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And they just say this again, the dwarves are for the dwarves. Well, as the story moves along, there's this moment, this picture. uh, I won't do it justice to read the book. But as the land of Narnia faces darkness, and as they think that they're facing their death, the animals are tossed into a stable um, where they think they'll meet their death. They think that there's somebody going to kill them in the stable. But as they enter in the stable, they realize that this is Aslan's way of bringing them into new life. So they come through the stable. Instead of a dark stable, they come into this beautiful new creation of the most beautiful parts of Narnia that they'd ever seen. Like, wow, this is, I thought I was going to die. And in fact, this is all of my favorite things over here. But the dwarves get tossed through the same door. And they're all huddled in a corner by the door, shivering. Oh, I can't believe we're still in this stable. I can't believe we're probably going to die pretty soon. Even though everything around them is beautiful and paradise. One of the humans who are there observing this, he's like, how, how can we help them? They're trying to convince them. And she turns to Aslan and says, Aslan, you're the most powerful. You should be able to. If anybody can help them, you can. And Aslan says to her, he says, dearest, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarves, and he gave this low growl. And it set everything shaking. But the dwarves said to to one another, hear that? That's just the gang at the other end of the stable. Uh, They they do it with some machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They, they, They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees. Pies and pigeons and trifles and ices, as maybe not our bouquet, but... uh, And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand, but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had a bit of old turnip, and the third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. 
But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling. Till in a few minutes, there was a free fight, and all the good food was smeared on their faces and their clothes trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their minds, yet they are in that prison. And so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Jesus cares deeply about the way that our hearts can harden. Why he says in Hebrews 6, he warns us because he loves us about the dangers of those who have tasted and seen the good things of Christ and go, ah, I won't be taken in. I find it interesting that the chapter ends with Jesus' statement about his mother and his brothers. After Jesus had made his case, we see one more witness. The people that Jesus says he knows most intimately are the ones who actually trust God who are not suspicious of him, but trust him and do what his father says. Now, to this point, all that I've done is try to convince you to not be skeptical about Christianity. Which is precisely what you'd expect from someone who's trying to manipulate you to follow another system. Some of you are still feeling that way. Oh, but Christianity, that's the right way. That's what I might say, but that's what everybody might say about their system. Whether it's a political party, the newest multi-level marketing scheme, or another religious system, everyone will say, look, all the other systems are untrustworthy, except mine. I'd like to show you why in Jesus we find something wholly different. Because in Jesus we have not a system, but a person. Through this whole section, Matthew has been doing something very clever. All while Jesus has been challenging the cynicism of the Pharisees, he's been pointing out something about himself. I mentioned earlier that we can empathize with the Pharisees and Jewish people. They have been profoundly disappointed. God has been faithful, but their temples and priests have fallen down and disappointed them. God has been faithful, but their prophets have disappointed them. God has been faithful, but their kings have disappointed them. Priests, prophets, and kings, all throughout the Old Testament have pointed toward the love of God for his people, but they have all been insufficient. They've all been humans tarnished by the effects of sins. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus has just here said, that the fulfillment of all of those things, prophet, priest, and king, take place in him. In chapter 12, in verse 6, when we were talking about the Sabbath just a couple weeks ago, he says something greater than the temple and the priests is here. And in our text this morning, he continues to say something greater than Jonah, the prophet, is here. And something greater than Solomon, the king, 
is here. Jesus is the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, and the ultimate king. Well, then the Pharisees say, so what? They all disappointed us. Oh, no, 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 no. He says, here, here is the sign I will give you. We passed over it in verse 40. It's the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so Jesus himself will be buried three days and nights. And just to, if some of you are math people and you're like, Good Friday to Easter Sunday, that's not three days, three nights. You just need to know, like, and you can look it up. It's a well-known fact that uh, in Hebrew culture, you kind of, like we use 24-7 to just mean like all the time. They use day and night to just refer to any period of a day. So when they say three days, three nights, it's actually, it works with when Jesus was buried. In case you were worried about that, I know some of you are accountants and, and whatnot. But this is Jesus' sign. He says, I will be buried three days and three nights. So Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king will die and be raised. And I don't know if you see how profound this is. If we're talking about a wicked and unfaithful generation, the Ninevites who Jonah went to, they were top of the list. But God loved even those who were a wicked generation. And he will do all that he can to bring grace to even the worst of sinners. He wouldn't even let the faithlessness of Jonah get in the way. Go home and read Jonah today. It takes you eight minutes. It's not long. Uh, Pay attention particularly to how committed God is to saving the people of Nineveh. Every time Jonah tries to get out of rescuing the Ninevites, uh, God sends something to get him back on track. He sends the wind, he sends the sailors, he sends the fish, he sends the plant. He's committed to thwart the faithlessness of the serpents to save those who need it. And so Jesus will not allow the failures of other humans to thwart his mission to rescue them. Even when they are so committed to their own cynicism that they murder Jesus. God will this time not use a fish, but a grave to carry salvation to the people who need him. So Jesus provides a way out of our skeptical cynicism, friends. He does what no one else will ever do for you. He offers himself, not a system, not a scheme. I am not here today offering you Christianity as another system. I think that would be exhausting for all of you. Too many people have tried to sell you things. Too many people have tried to use you to benefit them. I'm here pleading with you to look at Jesus and what he has done for you. There are narcissists. There are self-centered politicians and business leaders and schemes and even pastors who want you for their gain. But look at Jesus. Jesus, by this sign, by his death, and resurrection removes the threat and the fear of narcissism and self-promotion through abuse of power. Instead, he took the place of the abused. He died for the ones who killed him. Here is how I will demonstrate how safe I am to follow, Jesus says. Kill me and I will still love you. No other religion, no other worldview, and no other person will offer you that you're skeptical, look at this as your proof that he is not trying to take you in, 
but rather he is here to rescue you. No one would ever lay down their life to take advantage of you. But greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. So my friends, it makes sense that we trend toward being skeptical, cynical, and hard-hearted. Jesus knows the kind of world that we live in. But oh, does he love you? And he sees what you secretly know to be true. That hard-hearted cynicism about the things of God is a consequence of the sinful world, not a defense against it. And he wants to free us from that. So much so that he would become the very sign of salvation. The God who will stop at nothing in pursuit of his people. No unfaithful system will dare get in the way of his mission to free you if you will let him. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we have the surest hope and assurance and safety to give our allegiance to the one who has shown that he is trustworthy. Will you allow yourself to be soft in heart toward him? It feels risky because it always has been to give allegiance to someone. But it is not risky because Christ died, Christ rose, Christ reigns. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your beauty and your splendor. Thank you for your love for this generation. Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you show us the freedom of following you that allows us to lean on something instead of ourselves? Let us not be a people who say we are for ourselves that we find our hope and life in you because of what you have done. Open our eyes, unstop our ears, and help us hear what you are saying to us in this moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.